0: You're listening to Holding Space for Therapists, a podcast for modern therapists. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy, and in this episode, I'm giving you part one to my conversation with Dr. Jen Hardy. In this episode, we explore Jen's decision to take insurance and her experience as being a therapist in private practice in a rural community. Dr. Jen Hardy is shifting the narrative of what it means to take insurance, and I can't wait to share her story and experience with you. You're listening to Holding Space for Therapists, a podcast for modern therapists. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy, and I'm passionate about supporting therapists and building profitable, sustainable, and meaningful private practices. Are you ready to build or grow your modern private practice? Let's dive in. Hello, Dr. Jen Hardy. Thank you so much for taking the time to get on the podcast with me and have this conversation. I'm so excited to get the chance.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to get a chance to sit down and talk
0: with you. Me too. Okay. So let's just jump right in. So Jen, you are a psychologist, correct? And you're in Mm -hmm. private practice. Can you share a little bit about your journey into the mental health field and then your decision to start a private practice? Yeah. So um,
1: sort of long story short, I fell in love with psychology in high school, taking a psychology class and Um, I had started undergrad as a math major because that had always been the plans, but pretty quickly I realized Mm -hmm. psych was just a better fit for me. Um, I knew at that time I said, I I was just determined I wanted to be a professor. And so Mm -hmm. I headed into graduate programs. I have a master's in community counseling from Ball State and I just always had had as the plan I was going to be a professor so this was right when licensure for independent practice for counselors was becoming a thing and I was mm-hmm. going I was going to be in the first class of people to graduate on that track and then I ended up switching course and going into the non-licensure track cuz again I thought professor professor research yeah. but when I was doing my internship there um, at the university counseling center I had this like moment of wow, this is really awesome. I really love being a therapist. Okay, I could do this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always held it as this backup plan. And I I took a couple years off and worked in as in research at a a hospital. And that pretty much confirmed for me that hospital work and testing and clinical psych wasn't my scene, wasn't Mm -hmm. really what i was drawn to and and then i i so i it confirmed that i should go back into counseling psychology for my phd program but again all along in my training i had this idea of i'm going to be a professor and i'm going to teach and do some research and backup plan could be maybe being a staff psychologist at a university counseling center where i could teach classes and supervise and so did an internship doing exactly that at the university counseling center and, um, just ended up falling in love with it more and more with the, the flexibility and the creativity and how analytical you could be. I loved my colleagues. Um, sometimes you're drawn into careers based on just the jobs that are available yep. to you. And, um, I graduated right after the stock market crashed and the bubble housing bubbles first. And it was really hard to come up with jobs, especially academic jobs. And um, my husband and I were just like, let's just hope that one of us can get an academic job. And then the other person is just gonna have to be flexible. But one of us needs to get a job. And she was thankfully able to get a job. That is why we relocated to Knoxville. And I thought, well, I don't really feel like I'm ready to do that private practice thing. I had a lot of concerns about what I even really like owning a business. And so I was looking more for salaried positions. And I, I worked for a year and a half in a community mental health agency. And I think that was the best clinical training that I could ever have gotten in my career was, was there. Um But as we all know, it's a really stressful job. You have really high caseloads, very busy. And I saw it as a place where I could be until I had my second kid. And that I would, at that point, transition into a part-time practice. And um, I thought, I wonder how this will go. But I think being a few years post-licensure, I felt really comfortable with my clinical skills. So taking on the idea of starting a business just didn't feel... um, quite as intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a lot less intimidating as I was going through the process than I thought it would be. And I always tell people, I think I have the best job in the world. And they look at me with strange eyes of like, wait, what? (laughs) But I really do think that I I have just an excellent setup.
0: Mm. So there's a few things that you said in there that really resonated. Um, I can really relate to to a few of the pieces too. I, I, for a while, I really thought that I was going, I really wanted to go into academia um, and be a professor and do research. And I think that, you know, I, I did a few similar like internships that really gave me a sense of what that, career might look like, but also what a career might look like being a clinician and being in Mm -hmm. private practice. And I found that I actually went to one interview, um, like a full-time tenure track teaching position, and I left the interview being like, this is not what I want to be doing. Like, it did not feel right. But there was like the safety and security of the salary that just... Was still in my. Was still driving me. It was still sort of the thing that I was prioritizing. Um, but you mentioned flexibility and creativity as something that I imagine those might be. Those must be or might be values that you have that maybe align with the private practice route that you took. Um, but I also love that you said that your experience working in a community clinic was like the best training that you could have ever gotten because I know so many clinicians who are. Right there, right where you were, and maybe scared to set off on their own or to at some point start their own practice um, and maybe feeling that burnout from, you know, how tough those clinics can be and those caseloads. But I just I love that you're honoring like how critical that training was for like really forming the clinician that you are today and your clinical expertise and the like level of confidence that you then gained that then helped catapult you into making that leap and step into private practice.
1: Yeah. It was something that was not intentional, but I, it was stumbled into, I have been very fortunate. I think through my training that I have just had, um, excellent supervisors Mm -hmm. who were very empowering. I was trained by many feminist therapists and so they haven't been blank screen types of, Mm -hmm. of people and, and have been quite empowering. I think the hard um, aspect of an academic environment is this strive to more, more, more perfectionism and, um, And I I trained in heavily psychodynamic programs. So it's let's dive into people's interpersonal patterns and early life experiences. And so everyone around you has a lot of this information about your history. And you're just hoping that you can trust them with these vulnerable parts of yourself, right? And Mm -hmm. holding dual roles. Being in a community mental health center, you don't really have the privilege of working Mm -hmm. towards this perfect standard, because, um, if, if you're just trying to help somebody get their electric turned back on, you know, that is a different type of work that is perhaps more critically useful than some of the deeper insight oriented work that I still highly value. And I do a lot of, I, I think it just helped me more well-rounded as a clinician, but also be surrounded by colleagues who were not going to um you just didn't feel evaluated. Yeah. There was no space and time to be evaluating other people's performance.
0: <laughs> we were yeah. just
1: going to help each other get through. And I think that was exactly what I needed um, to build my confidence as a clinician. Mm.
0: Mm. And so when you took the step and the leap into private practice, what were some of those like initial steps that you felt like you that like were really critical? Like how did you sort of, establish yourself as a clinician in private practice?
1: Yeah. So again, I was just really fortunate with the colleagues that I had because sometimes people get in these agencies and um, they feel pressure from coworkers that you must stay because I am staying. And I did not have colleagues that had that impression. We all knew we were here for a time and we wanted to give people permission to leave so that when it was our turn to leave, We had permission. And so I was pretty open with them about my plans to leave, and they were really supportive and would help me think of things that I I had to do and where should I position, where should I have a practice. And um, that was just invaluable to me. Um, In terms of the logistics of setting up a practice, I live in Maryville, Tennessee, I was concerned, It's a. I looked at this up, I thought, how many people live here? Because I am not from here. This is yeah. a town of 30,000. There's wow. another town that is basically blended in to Maryville on the map, you'll see it's Alcoa, and they have 10,000 people. So it's basically a town of 40,000 people, but we serve a very rural Appalachian population, people who will come in from the mountains and were the town that, um, where they get their groceries and see their doctors. So very, very rural. And I thought, boy, it's a small town. I don't know what that would be like to be a provider. And so I had initial intentions to practice in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. So that I would have that separation and things fell through very last minute. Um, and I had to regroup and, this is where it's important to maintain good collegial relationships because I was able to not make these decisions by myself, but consult with people that I really trusted who were like, I really think you're making a bigger deal about the Marable thing than it needs to be. I think you should give it a try. And and they were right. And that gave me kind of the nudge I needed to, um, to get set up in town. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Yeah, no,
0: you are. You are. So it sounds like the this like one of the key pieces for you was the support, the support network that you had around you, and specifically the colleagues that you were yeah. connected with. And I mean, yeah, it's one thing to get to be to get lucky and to just sort of have these colleagues sort of available to you and there in the work that you're doing. And then you know, but then there's also like the maintaining those pieces, those relationships, mm-hmm. right? And then it's being able to actually like receive the support from those relationships. So you could have had these great colleagues, but like not, not entrusted them with like these questions of like, what should I do next? And so it sounds like that was really key for you in get, having not only the confidence, but then taking the, the meaningful risk of saying, let's, let's try this here. Let's see if we can do this here. Right. Yeah. Cause how I plan my transition was,
1: It was not a secret to people. People knew I was going to try to get pregnant. And when I got pregnant, I was going to work there through my pregnancy and I would leave right before I I had my son. And then I would take that time as an unofficial maternity leave, probably probably go back and ideally start seeing clients fairly soon after he was born knowing that it might take me a while to scale up my practice. So I might be working, but I might only have a couple of clients the whole week. Right. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. would give me some time uh, to build up my practice. My husband's a professor and the way it timed, it was okay. I would start scaling up a practice and starting a practice when he was going on summer break that yeah. way, we didn't have to figure out daycare and childcare, um, for, for our son. Um, and yeah, so, but that's also a stressful time to do this in terms of planning financially for, um, lost income. And now we have this additional expense of hospital bills and another family member. So there was risk there for sure. Um, but there's always risk.
0: There's always risk. There's always risk. Right. But it sounds like you and your partner were, we're obviously communicating about these things. There was there was intention and thought sort of behind and around the timing of things. And you know, I one of my I specialize in working with folks who are in the sort of fertility through postpartum stage of life. And obviously, there's when it comes to timing, there is only so much we have agency and control around, right? Um, but it sounds like with with sort of what, how things sort of played out for the two of you. You guys were really trying to be intentional about, okay, how are we going to figure this out logistically, financially, and relationally as we're sort of navigating both of our careers?
1: And also knowing that a lot of things were out of our control and yeah. would be unexpected. And we were just going to have to accept that that period of time was going to mean a lot of um, adaptation and yeah. communication and that it was a transitional phase. Um yeah. And I, I had a curveball thrown at me because, again, I was going to practice in Knoxville. I had the contract all ready to be signed. I went with my six week old son. I had moved my furniture in, and I was just there saying, We really need to sign these papers. And they said, Oh, you know about that? <laughs> oh my baby's <laughs> <God. laughs> right there in the meeting with me because you know, therapists, we, we tend to be pretty um, accepting people, flexible. people. So baby in a business meeting and uh, yeah, they, they needed a totally different financial arrangement and I just didn't think I could do it. And there was this panic moment and of course hormones and, oh no, yeah. what do I do? Like, well, I've got to get going I like plans this isn't really fitting my plan here and um in consulting with the person that I thought was situated in a way to get be able to give me the best advice um she was like well you know there's this space in mariville here mm. you could rent here and she had yeah. been there a year and it had worked really well she's like why don't you come meet them I think you'll see this is going to be okay and I had to you know pivot a really big pivot um which was hard but but things you know you can make the meaning you want to make out of these experiences and um having gone through that I learned some things about owning a business and um asserting myself but also I I found my billing person that way she is the person that they use to get on help people get on insurance panels. She's a uh-huh. credentialer. And when I was telling her what has happened, I said, you know, uh, guess what? I'm not actually going to be there. I don't know what this means for my insurance credentialing. And she's like, well, you know, I am also a biller. And I was like, okay, can you be my biller? And that, cause that was the piece I had never had to navigate. And I didn't know what I was doing. And that sounded very time consuming. And it just kind of clicked into place. I don't, I wouldn't have been able to find her. She doesn't advertise. She's only word of mouth. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. So things have their way of working out. If you just are a kind and decent person and <laughs> keep fighting for yourself and advocating for yourself yeah. and keep building relationships and finding opportunities, you're going to find the one that's going to help you land on your feet.
0: I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I love, though, that now we're talking about – the insurance piece. Um, And so what I'd love to hear from you, because I am, I don't take insurance and I'm in a big city. And so I know that there's a lot of clinicians that will ask me questions around insurance and, and, or um, especially like in the community that that we're building here on social media. So at the Instagram account, holding space for therapists, Mm -hmm. there's quite a few folks in there who are in rural areas and don't have a ton of clinicians around them and so are joining these communities as a way to to connect as a way to sort of build um, build those communities so I'm getting a lot of these questions and they're not things that I can speak from personal experience and so I'd love to hear from you you know if somebody is in a rural area like what are some of your what are some of the unique experiences of of doing that since since you did have to pivot and you've now sort of established there Mm -hmm. Um, I know um, from what I've heard that being on insurance tends to be much more important, especially when you are in those areas, because people in your community are relying on their insurance more so for their health care. And so I would love to hear just, you know, whatever you can share about that process and about your experience in that. Yeah.
1: Um, I guess I had never really considered not taking insurance that wasn't really on my radar. No. Um, I think that's in part because, um, Uh, I would need to use my health insurance in order to see a therapist. Um, There's definitely this like national dialogue uh, wanting to say insurance is terrible. It never works out for providers, right? Like catastrophizing about insurance. I do think that there are big problems with our healthcare industry. And I think that there are places in the United States where it makes tons of sense for people as a business owner to elect not to take insurance. And that said, there are plenty of areas where insurance is a really viable option to make a good healthy living. Um, I will say, you know, I'm a licensed psychologist, so I get a higher rate from insurance than master's level providers do. What I'm finding, because I've lived in several states now, and I just appreciate more that there are regional cultures, um, and that includes healthcare, right? And so in the Knoxville area, it is a very common practice to use a credentialer, and there are people that work and have independent businesses, and this is just what they do, is they help people get on insurance panels. Mm -hmm. Probably a lot of them are billers as well. Um, but these are offered as separate services. So when I was connected to my biller through that, um, initial place where I was going to practice, we sat down and I said, I don't know anything about insurance. I really need, you know, your, your feedback here. Can you tell me what insurance panels people tend to join? And she basically just outlined it. She says, well, everybody tends to be on these because they're the major insurers in the town.
0: So Mm -hmm. at a minimum,
1: I would suggest these couple. And then we stepped out from there and, um, I had decided I better opt in to most of them since mm-hmm. I didn't really know. Um, and I needed to get a lot of, ref- you know, as many yeah. referrals as I could, yeah. um, uh, I think we are fortunate because we've come of age with a lot of electronic assistance. And so I knew I'd always had an electronic health record. I just wanted an electronic health record as I went into practice. And um, a lot of this stuff is just built into these systems, mm-hmm. You can them, but you get electronic claim submissions you just have to set it up and then with the click of a button you've submitted it to your insurance and it's very you know streamlined and easy um And I guess I always have a focus on keeping my overhead low. That way I don't feel painted into a corner and pressure to make business decisions I don't feel good about. And then I have some more flexibility on maybe taking an insurance that doesn't have as good of reimbursement, but I know that a major employer in our town has it. And um, I want people to be able to see a therapist yeah. Um, the other factor that I found that helped being on insurance helped with was um, when you sign. I always had people do a primary care coordination letter that's required by a couple of insurers. I think Blue Cross Blue Shield yeah. is one of them that you at least ask. And I had somebody suggest just pop a few business cards in that letter when you mail it. And holy yeah. smokes, those primary care <laughs> providers would pretty much immediately start handing my card out because they would have they're the front lines of healthcare. There's the front lines of mental health care and a lot of small towns, and they know the benefits of therapy for people who are having more serious issues. And they know that they are not the person to manage them. And my primary care providers, and of course, psychiatry providers in town, just making sure they knew who I was and had cards, um, they filled my practice up. Um, I don't know. I was full yeah. in a month.
0: That's Jen. That's amazing. But that
1: is also. I live in an area that has a critical shortage of providers. Yeah, and uh, you can get federal funds to for the uh, student loan reimbursements. Um, we are in a critical shortage area where you can work at a community mental health center and get student loan repayment. So that's also the area I live in, right?
0: Yeah. 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 So, okay. There's a few. So I, as, as you're talking, I'm like jotting <laughs> down because there's like so many key things in here that mm-hmm. ideas. those <laughs> are really good. So, so far, some of the things I'm hearing is like, the, the critical role that support and like building those colleague relationships had for you in the beginning and then into your private practice, um, you know, when pivots came and when pivots happened, sort of identifying who is the person in like my inner circle that can be really helpful here and like mm-hmm. supporting me in making this decision and supporting me in this pivot. And also, it sounds like also the mindset and perspective and meaning that you made from that pivot. Um, It also sounds like, you know, having that um, biller um, and like identifying these, the person who can really help, you know, there are these people who have these businesses that can help um, when it comes to getting on insurance panels and in the billing, it sounds like electronic health records has been key for you, keeping your overhead low and sending those cards to those providers when you were, you know sending out those letters to have collaborative care with providers, which, you know, whether insurance requires it or not is really helpful. So even if you aren't this, if you aren't having to do that, if you are collaborating with your client's physician, psychiatrist, or another provider, throw in some business cards. And it sounds like that was really helpful and key in sort of launching your business for you and establishing you in your community.
1: Yeah. And I, honestly, out of respect for those primary care providers, I stopped putting my business cards in Mm. after a few months because, you know, if they're handing out business cards and I'm full, yeah, it doesn't really help them out. Does Mm. it? Because, um, it it doesn't. So, so I like a my landlord is a psychiatrist. And so if I have openings, I'll tell him. I'll say, hey, I have openings. Mm-hmm. And yeah. not to pressure him to then make give me referrals, but just as a heads up. Because I know it doesn't save him time or help his patients out any if I'm full and he's handing my number out to people and then they're calling. And it's a vulnerable process to Mm -hmm. uh, make a phone call to a therapist to schedule a first appointment. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we don't want to set people up for frustrating experiences. Um, but, Yeah, I keep coordinating with providers like that in a very simple way. They love the business card because they can physically give a patient in their office something and saying, here, where is this concrete thing? Go and call this person. Um, And that was really useful.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit more of a warm handoff because it's somebody that they trust. And if this person that I trust is giving me this card, then there is – There is sort of a little bit of more trust built in, you know, to make that vulnerable call.
1: Yeah. And I'm in a small enough town that, I don't know, there might be four psychiatrists in the town. Yeah. And you're in LA. I'm in San Diego. San Diego. How many psychiatrists do you think are in San Diego? (laughs) I can't even
0: tell you. One on every.
1: I'm just <laughs> get Like my marketing strategy, I, I say mm-hmm. move to Maryville. if you want a very business light yeah. business. I there are two psychiatric practices in Maryville. There yeah. are some psych nurse practitioners as well that I'm not including in that list because yeah. it's not as you know dramatic of a story. Um, but you can have these really business light businesses that don't yeah. require big marketing plans because there might be one big primary care physicians group because they've all consolidated, right? Yeah. And it doesn't take much to get known.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is why I'm so glad that I'm having you on, Jen, because a few—I mean, there's many reasons, but one of them is that I love that you are bringing in another piece of the narrative around insurance, right? Because you're right. There is a really big discourse out there that like insurance is bad and healthcare is bad. And it's, there's a lot of negative discourse around that. So I love that you're bringing in this other discourse, this other experience, right. And personal Mm -hmm. experience part of the story and narrative. Um, But I also love that you're describing what marketing looks like in a city that's completely different than my own because not everybody lives in a city like San Diego or LA or New York or some of these big cities. And so I'm just so grateful to have other voices to this experience, right? Because I know that there are therapists out there who could really relate to your context.
1: And I imagine that there are some therapists that get a little nervous about the idea of, boy, if it's hard for me to build a practice in um, New York, I- in New York city, how would I go and move to, um, a smaller town and I'm blanking on, you know, like how would I go and, and make a viable practice there? It probably is easier to, yeah. to build a more viable practice because yeah. um, it comes back to the basics of what we are really good at as therapists, which is relationship building and communication mm. And I think
0: the marketing just looks the marketing can, just looks different, right? Like there's right. totally ways that, like in these bigger cities, that you can create, you can identify your niche, and you can create like that marketing plan that's going to give you a full practice. Um, but it's going to look different, you know. But I love that this this piece that you're identifying here, which is what brought you into this work, is going to be a huge strength in your in your sort of marketing plan and your business plan is like building relationships, like really building those connections
1: and understanding like these are mutual connections. And so, um, just like, I, I know that like my psychiatrist colleague, if he said, Jen, I've really, can you please see this person? I know he's not going to do that very often, but there are times when it makes sense because we're in the same office building for people who have transportation difficulties or who are very severely mentally ill and have to come with family members. It makes tons of sense to try to um, lessen barriers. And, yeah. and if I am full. I will say, sure, I will take them and I will make space because I know he's not going to take advantage of that. And yeah. I know, and I have done the opposite where I said, I know you are full and you are not taking people. Can you please consider taking this person? Mm-hmm. And here's why. And a lot yeah. of times these are people with maybe complex neurological disorders mm-hmm. in addition to mental health disorders. And I just really trust his confidence um, as Mm -hmm. a provider. And so it's, it's a mutual relationship. It's not just Mm -hmm. them helping me or me helping them. It really is about having, um, mutual, healthy, collegial relationships.
0: All right, guys, that is part one with Dr. Jen Hardy. If you are ready for more and want to tune in to part two, where we talk all about social media and Dr. Jen Hardy's decision to step into the larger wellness arena in the digital space of social media, then you can tune in to part two with Dr. Jen Hardy right now.